If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 34. Over the last few, or next few weeks in, during the summer, I, I want to do uh, some of the Psalms. And last week, we did Psalm 33. Um, Psalm 33 and 34 probably originally was one, one uh, work, uh, one piece of, of work. And next week, I believe I'm going to go back up and do 32 because I think they're all rooted together. If you were to take this as a cluster... Essentially, how does a godly person, how is a person who's trusting the Lord uh, see the Lord? Why is there a blessing of the Lord? Why do you, do you have a heart that wants to bless God? And there's reasons for it. So you're going to see these reasons laid out in these Psalms. Psalm 32 is because your sins are forgiven. That's why you would praise God. It's the, it's the most incredible reason to praise God. We looked at 33 last week, all the various reasons of God's excellency, those perfections in God that just make you automatically want to respond to God of how amazing you are. So that's what we saw last time. This time is also by David. David wrote all of these. And this is uh, based on his personal testimony. Your experience with God allows you personally to praise God in a way that nobody else does. Do you see? We can all sing in beautiful voice, amazing love. How could it be that thou, my God, would die for me? All of us have that in common. But all of us have a different testimony in terms of how God has been good to you. So your voice is a different voice than all the other voices in the universe. There's nothing like you to praise God because God has put your life in such a way that you know what God did for you. In fact, God uh, often in the Psalms, David especially, is talking to his soul. Soul, never ever forget this. Soul, soul of David, soul of Brian, soul that I talk to when I'm talking to myself. You real person, you, that will live forever. You don't forget what God has done for you, okay? So in 34, we're going to to look at, this psalm is about prayer, this psalm is about deliverance, this psalm has a great story attached to it, I really, really like it, Um, but it's about many, many things, all right? So this is Psalm 34. A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed, Interesting, that's not in the psalm. That is, a, that is a piece of information that we need in order to make sense of the psalm later, and we'll, we'll see that. So the psalm starts, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord And he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth around them that fear him and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. O fear the Lord, all his saints. For there is no want of them that fear him. 
The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What a man is that he that desireth life and loveth many days that he shall see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth them of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. May God add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Um, There's no way that I have dug deep enough. One time I took a group of uh, teenagers, Melissa and I took a a group of teenagers, and we went to Rome on the way back from a mission trip. And I wanted to take them to Vatican Museums, which is one of the best museums in the world, but I had teenagers who would rather sit beside a door and talk to each other and play on their telephones than do something cool. And so I'm the one that got stuck at the door. So when everybody else went in and saw the the coolest stuff that the earth has ever collected, I just looked at the door, pretty cool door, But in some ways, I feel like that's as far as I got into this. This is so deep and so rich, and there's so much here that I don't think I did as much as I should. I was delighted. On another trip, Melissa and I went to Washington, D.C. with some teenagers, and we went to the International Spy Museum. And we only got as far as the gift shop. So the next time we went on a trip, we took no teenagers with us at all, and we go and do what we want to. Okay? (laughs) Psalm 34, by the way, is, um, I don't know if you ever had an English teacher that made you learn about poetry and it made you hate poetry. Suddenly you realized that there was a structure to that poem and that all that, everything had a name and, they, and everything had, had something that it was playing off something else. And you were like, oh, I thought it was a nice poem, but now I hate it. Psalm 34 has a serious architecture. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't do a typical poem like roses or red, violets or blue. Okay? It is different than that. Um, this is special in two different ways. First of all, it's an alphabetical poem. It's an acrostic poem, which means that the Hebrew letter, the first Hebrew letter, either has one verse or, a, or several verses, and then the next Hebrew letter in the alphabet has a bunch of verses, and then the next. So it goes through the, it goes through the, uh, the alphabet. Um, last year during COVID, Aaron had to write a, um, a poem that started with each letter of the alphabet. And Melissa said, have your dad tell, tell uh, you the one that he wrote on his Mother's Day card. So I wrote a Mother's Day card once that said, M is for the million things you gave me. O is for the other things you gave me. T is for the thousand things you gave me. H is for the hundred things you gave me. E is for everything you gave me. And R is for the rest of the things you gave me. Keep it up. <laughs> but that's an acrostic. So Psalm 34, first of all, is an acrostic. Second of all, it's chiasmic. Okay, so some big, I told you the English teacher would be at, after you. 
A chiasm is an X. Okay, a chiasm is an X. So this is pretty amazing. What happens is you've got a line, whatever line is at the top of this poem, and the bottom of the poem have something to do with each other. Okay? They either restate each other or, or expand in some ways the first and last line. The second line and the second to the last line have something to do with each other. Okay? And it goes in towards the middle. And then whatever's in the middle is the most important thing in the poem. All right? So just now, this is all the way through it, but I'm just going to give you just a little bit so that you can see it. So here is verse 4. All right, this is verse 4. And remember, David is writing, so this is a lot of I. I, I. This is a testimony he's giving you. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Okay? Now, if you go to 19, which is its opposite, it's like an echo, if you want to think about it, like a reflection or an echo. Verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Do you see it? So you have a specific personal case at the beginning. David is saying, I, this happened to me. And then at the end, here's something that's true of all people who are trusting God. So look at six. David calls himself the poor man. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saves him out of all of his troubles. Verse 17, it's its echo, it's a reflection. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Do you see there is an architecture here? Which, it's interesting because architecture doesn't just hold the building up. Architecture is not always meant to be looked at. Architecture is what's meant to be felt after you leave. All right? When you come in and go, this is a nice room. The proportions are nice in this room. The ceiling is high enough. I don't know how tall the ceiling is. The room is wide enough. It's not too short. It's deep enough. Like, there's a, there is a architecture to this building that makes it pleasing, all right? And it also keeps it dry. So the architecture does put the roof at the top so that the rain falls off the edges. So there is functionality to it. But there's something that you simply go, wow, I liked that. I don't know why, but I liked it. So the architecture of this poem that's holding it together makes you feel a certain way. And teaches you a certain way because your mind already dealt with the fact that you did something and then it hears it again and you're smart enough in the deep back of your head to simply tie those two knots together. You're like, oh, that's just what this said. It said it in a different way and it reinforced it without even you knowing it. That's what it's doing. Look at eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So eight is coming closer and closer to the middle of the X. So in my estimation, it's getting more and more crucial or more and more important. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You see, they're, they're back and forth. So God, uh, God is laying it out for you individually and then sending you towards something that you think about, consider strongly, and then sending you back with reflections of what you've already learned. He's building it in. He's reviewing it inside already. It's amazing what God is doing in his word. So let me break down this, this psalm for you. The first three verses is a command. It's a call to praise. It's an exhortation. Do something. And it's the idea of do it with me. I'm doing it. I'm in the process of doing it. I'm telling my soul to do it. 
Now, with me, do it. Let's do this together. Let's have a corporate, okay? Why do we come together as Christians, okay? You've either worshipped or you haven't. You've either worshipped God already or you haven't worshipped God already. And you are in families. You've either worshipped as a family or you haven't worshipped as a family. To come together as worshipping families who are made up of worshipping people and then say, amazing love that God would die for me. Suddenly, there's power. It's more than just the sum of its parts. It is magnification. It's amplification. And it's, why, and it's remembering each other, okay? I'm going through a time, I'm going through a time, says, says every soul in your turn. I'm going through, I need you, and I need you, I need to watch you genuinely praise God so that I'll do it too. We stir each other up to love and good works. That's our purpose. That's why we come together. And that's why we want to be together. And that's why we miss each other when we're not together. That's why we miss each other. It's not as rich. It's the same tune with no harmony. It's the same, it's the, it's the same ingredients with no cake attached. Okay? It's, it's good, but it's not as good as it would be. That's the idea. It's together. So he, asks, he calls people to worship. Then he gives his testimony. So from verses 4 through 7, he's giving his personal testimony. This is what happened to me. This is the experience I've had with God. God is eternal, and I'm a vapor. But I've had this experience with God until my dying day. It didn't not happen. I can't make it not happen. God did this in my life. He did these wonderful things in my life and showed me that he loved me. He did these, these amazingly uh, sorrowful things in my life, and he showed me that he loved me. He, did, he said yes and showed me that he was there, and he said no and showed me that he was there. Praise God. Here's my testimony, and it's different from yours. Then he goes in towards the middle. Let me tell you that in the Hebrew alphabet, it's the letter L, okay? And the center here is verse 11. Can you look at verse 11? Verse 11 says, O come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's the middle, okay? So it means that David has a testimony. He has had experiences. Things have happened in his life, amazing things, amazingly positive, amazingly negative things, and he has experienced God, and those experiences give him the right to speak into our lives. Do you see it? Your testimony what God has done for you, with you, as you've watched, as you've been a spectator and a recipient, a beneficiary, as God has taken you, taken your limp, lifeless body and resurrected you, as he did something in your heart, as he turned a, turned a heathen into a godly person, you now not only have the right to speak into my life, you have the duty to speak into my life. I will never be what God wants me to be without you. And you must believe that that's true. That's not simply saying nice things and we all just believe the lie. You required to help me. You're required to show me so that I can have confidence. You're lending me your confidence. And you may be more unconfident than I am. 
But those things that happen that you're sure, sure, sure that God did, and those things that are so completely in your face, positive, sure, as you share them, you lend me the faith that I can hold on while I need to hold on. Do you see? And then we just lend each other all of our lives. We lend each other. We spur each other. We're cheerleaders. We kick each other in the rear when we need to. We are kind to each other on purpose. All right? Even if you should know better. We're kind to each other. And we're always doing it in God's honor. Okay? You treat me nice, not because you're nice. You treat me nice because you're honoring God by biting your tongue when you talk to me. That's the way it is. And we deal with each other in kindness, purposeful kindness, God reflecting glory in our kindness. And that's what it is. Now, when he speaks into our life, do you see that's why he said, come and I'll let me teach you. Let me tell you what has happened to me. Now, do you see the reflection? Why is the reflection generic or general? It's because this is what's true of all of us. These are the things that God, the God, the things that God did in your heart was individual with you, but the same as he does with everyone. God deals with us as, as not as dust. He knows we're dust, but he doesn't despise us as we're dust. All of us are sinners, but he doesn't treat us as sinners. He treats us the same as he treats his son. He shows you the same expression of happiness when he looks at you as when he looks at Christ. He did it for Christ's sake, but he's not faking it. He truly loves you. He truly wants to share time with you personally. And then when you share that with someone else, when you become a teacher, then it's true of all of us. And you see an X gets narrow, but then it gets wide again. And that's what happens. It is a, it's magnification. Remember verse 3? Magnify the Lord with me. We'll look at that. And then right at the end it recaps. So let's start with one. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Is the word bless weird there for you? Every English version, by the way, I think there are 37 English versions of the Bible. Every single one of them uses the word bless here. There are no alternate words. But bless is not a word that anybody uses. I mean, I understand bless. You have somebody that's greater blessing someone that is is lesser. Okay, that's the idea. I kind of understand blessing. It's like the idea of may good things happen to you from a greater to a lesser. So, uh, you know, grandparents would bless their their babies or, or whatever, something like that, or parents would bless their children, or you would be a blessing on someone when you have something to give and they are a recipient. But when you bless God, that doesn't make any sense at all. The word bless is the word eulogy, to say something true about them, to say something true that magnifies or, or, or brags on them or, or in, makes them higher in other people's estimations. When I bless God, what I'm really doing is I'm talking to my soul again, and I'm telling my soul, hey, Brian, bless God is, is essentially saying God is the only source of blessing. So there is something true of God, and as I bless him, what I'm doing is I'm telling myself and I'm telling other people that God is unique among all beings, and he is the only one capable of blessing. So when I'm, when I'm saying bless God, what I'm really saying is God is like God. God is the only one like God. So because if you somehow think that 
you can get you you can have a blessing from another person, you're going to be asking too much of that person. That person can't bless you. Only God can. And there's lots of people that make too much expectations of others. Okay? You know, one day your your daughter that you've worshipped since she was born is going to tell you to, that she wants to go by herself to the mall or whatever. And you're going to be crushed to, to death. It, 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 you can't let other people who are people do what God only has to do. God is the blesser. So to bless God is really tell God that he's God. And that he's the only one that can bless me. And I'm the beneficiary. Do you see? It, it, it's almost a backwards word. It's a word where I'm doing something, but really all I'm doing is telling God that he's the only one that can do something. That's what blessing is. And it says I'll do it at all times. And my praise shall be continually in my mouth. It doesn't matter. On your best of days when things are going exactly the way you would want them to, you praise God in gratitude and in, in, in exaltation. And God, you are awesome. And in your worst days, in your catastrophe days, those days, Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. And that is not something you can fake. Everybody can fake it when you've got it good and God's wonderful. Isn't God wonderful? Oh, yes, yes. It, it takes someone that God has worked in their life, through their experiences, through their testimony, to be able to praise, bless God all the time. And always in his mouth. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Do you see the word boast and humble in the same verse? Is that funny? Like boasting and humble has exactly opposite to do with each other. If you are humble, you're humble on purpose. Okay? If you're humble because you don't have anything, that's not really humble. That's being humiliated. Okay? If you're low, low, low because you're low... That's not humble. Humble is choice. I choose to be low in honor to God. That's humility. Okay? God is above me, so I am low on purpose. I humble myself under his hand that he might lift me up. So by doing that, that's something that's low. Don't brag. The humble hates it. Someone who's choosing to be low hates to listen to the 45-minute story about yourself. I don't know. Anybody ever stuck with the boss? who wants to talk about themselves, and you're dutiful obliged to stand there and just go, mm-hmm, that's wonderful about you, okay? If you brag about God, that's what it said, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, that makes the humble glad. Do you see it? When you talk about God's excellences, I'm safe. I feel safe. If, if because God has worked in my life, I know that I am low in my own eyes and that God is high in my eyes, you brag on him, that's the joy to a heart that's humble. Okay? It's not a, it's not a different type. This is Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But lest him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're going to boast, if you're going to brag, brag that you understand me. Because by understanding me, what you're doing is you're truly giving someone else hope. And then as, as that happened in you, and you might not even know how to say it. Your testimony doesn't have to be beautiful words. 
Your testimony can simply be you put your hand on my shoulder at right the right time. Because you know what I'm going through because you've gone through it. You have a testimony. God comforted you. You can be that comfort for me. Okay? A lot of times, the, the more catastrophic my day, the less I need a lecture. I don't know. I think everyone recognizes that. There's times that you just stand. You don't say a word. You do not say, hey, let me talk. You just stay there. And your staying there is saying, I know that God got me through things. And I don't, I've never gone through what you've just gone through. But I'm just going to stand here. And that presence is a comfort. That's a comfort. You are encouraging someone. And there are times that I do need you to just hit me over the head and talk to me and say, listen here, buddy, and just talk. There are times I need you to say it, and there are times that I don't. And really, the, the Spirit, as the Spirit leads you, you'll know. You'll know what to do. You'll know when you... Even people who always blow it get it right when God is working. They, they get it right, even the ones who don't get it right very much. Verse 3 magnify the Lord together with me. Interesting word. In my classroom, I have a microscope, but I also have a telescope. A microscope magnifies things, very small things, and makes them bigger than they actually are so that I can apprehend them. Something too small for me to know means that I don't know anything. So I look at something and I magnify it and make it bigger so that I can then make some sense about it. But God's not like that. You don't magnify God by making him bigger so that you can understand him, so you can look at him. You, because we're sinners. We're saved sinners, I pray, every one of us, I hope. But even saved sinners are sinners, and we put God in a box. Now, if you are a saved sinner, your box keeps changing. Every day, you're like, oh, I need a bigger box. Like, I didn't know who God was, and I thought he was just this big, and now my box isn't big enough. That's the difference between a saved sinner and an unsaved sinner. But you do not magnify him to make him bigger. He's way more like a telescope. There are stars in the night sky so big that if they were in the middle of where the sun is, the edge of that burning gas would be way out past Jupiter. And we were talking about stars so big that they're hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times bigger than our sun. They're very, very bright because it's a burning ball of gas. And I look up it and it looks like any other star. It just looks like a star. So if I want to look at that star and study it, I don't try to make it bigger. I try to make it, in my perception, more like it actually is. That star is so big that I can't, big doesn't even make sense, it's so big. So I don't need to make it bigger, I just need to have more understanding of it. So when we say magnify the Lord, what you're doing is you're saying together, let's together talk in such a way, share in such a way, enjoy each other in such a way that God becomes more and more like he actually is in reality and not like he is in our, in our reality. In our reality, we can put him in a box because And that's not necessarily because we're all wicked. We are wicked. It's because that's the way our brains work. We want to classify things. We want to organize everything. 
Everything goes in a class. Everything goes in a thing. There's an envelope for everything in our life, and God is something in our life, and so God needs to be in a box. Well, that's the problem. God doesn't like that. And, he, and just out of his own mischievous quality, he breaks your boxes. And some of your testimony is simply God breaking his box. And, he, and then you're like, and then you name him. For the rest of your life, there was that day that that thing happened. So Abraham named him over and over again. You are the God that did this. You're the God that did this. And if you, you know, Jehovah this, Jehovah that, there's 25 of these names. All through the Old Testament, people were like, they had an experience with God, and they're like, you're the God that's watching. I'm going to name you the God that watches me. Or you're the God that provides for me. I'm going to name you the God that provides for me. Or you're the God that judges me. I'm going to name you the God that judges me. Do you see it? You experience it in such a way that for the rest of your life, that's an Ebenezer. Do you ever sing... uh, Come thou fount of every blessing, and here I raise my Ebenezer, and nobody in the room knows what that means. It just means a pile of rocks that for the rest of your life, you know what that pile of rocks means. That's all it is. God did something in my life, and for the rest of my life, I can turn around in my path and go, that was God dealing with me about something that for the rest of my life, God's different than he was. For the rest of my life, he's more like he actually is, not in my small perception of him magnify the Lord with me. Let's do it together. If you magnify me, your energy passes with me and my energy passes with you and we're making much of God's son. To make much of God's son changes towns, changes towns, changes families, changes habits. Making much of God's son takes away addictions, gives you hope, gives you energy, gives you ability to speak into other people's lives and then gives you the guts to do it. Okay? So here's his testimony. I, this is verse 4, sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That was disappointing. When I just told you that verse 4 is his testimony, you're like, that was his testimony? Yeah. Now, if you remember, we started with a phrase before verse 1 that said, A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. That means this psalm is a commemorative psalm about an event in David's life. And that's all he wrote. Now, in some ways, I feel cheated. Okay? But it just happens that David's event is recorded for us. Now, I didn't pull these verses up because it's a lot. Let me just tell you the story. This is from 1 Samuel 21. Uh, we're, we were in chapter 19 today in Sunday school, so we'll get there in a couple weeks, so we'll get there. But Samuel 21, David is finally escaping from a maniacal King Saul. King Saul is tried to kill him on multiple occasions, and he's going to do it now, and David runs. And he runs south. Because all of King Saul's friends are east, north, and west. Nothing he can do. So he goes south. And he goes south and he comes to the tabernacle where the worship tent, where the Ark of the Covenant is and the priests are are doing sacrifices to where everybody would come once a year. And he goes to Nob. And the priests there are at Nob. And he he escaped with his life. He has no food. He didn't bring a lunch. He doesn't have a weapon. He has nothing. He simply just escaped by the skin of his teeth. He goes to the priest in Nob, and he, he says, 
okay, is there anything to eat? And the priest said, just the bread on the altar. And David said, I'll have some, thank you, with butter. And then, then he said, do you have any weapons? And he said, well, the only weapon here is Goliath's sword, and you're the only one that's ever used it, so, you know, it's wrapped in a cloth. I'll get it. So he gives him Goliath's sword, and he gives him the bread off the table, and David's, of course, lying and said, oh, yeah, uh, Saul sent me on something, and the rest of the guys, are, they'll be around later. And then he, he looks, and as he comes away from the priest, he meets eyes with a guy, Okay. I'm reading from chapter 21. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David's heart sinks, and his face gets hot. I don't know what you do when you freak out. Your hair stands up, and you're like, you get cold and hot at the same time, and you're just like, I'm in trouble. He just looks at that guy, and he's like, He's going to go right now and tell Saul that he saw me. Oh, no. Okay? Now, I'm going to save that enormously wonderful, very dramatic story for Sunday school. I'm not going to tell you what happened. Some stuff happens. Big stuff happens. But he has to run, and there's nothing further south. That's as south as the country gets. The next stop is Philistia. So he has to actually go to the Philistines, and he goes to Gath. Now, Abimelech, if you go back to that introduction, is the king of Gath. So this is the king of one of the Philistine cities. And Abimelech is like Pharaoh. It just means king. It's, there's, it's, his name's not Abimelech. It's the, he's the Abimelech. He's the guy. He's the chieftain or whatever, the, the high guy. In any case, he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the Philistines. Now... He killed a guy from Gath named Goliath maybe three years ago, two years ago, recently, okay? So I don't know whether he puts on some sunglasses. I don't know. He gets a mustache and goes, hello, my name's Bob, and I'm a freelance uh, soldier, and do you have a need for a soldier? And, of course, the guards instantly identify him, okay? The guards, they're like, that's David. It's David. Like, this is the guy who killed Goliath. Everybody knows him. And so he's, David is just like standing there in front of that, and then the, the, the guards instantly recognize him. Now he's sick again. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. My first question to myself when I was studying this is when did he start praying? If this is a prayer, when did he pray? Did he pray when he saw Doag? Oh, God, help me. I don't know what your prayers are. I don't know what your, oh, my goodness, prayers are. Like, oh, help me now. Help me, help me, help me. Okay? Uh, You know, the car's coming out of the thing right in front of you. I don't know what your immediate prayers are. Did he pray when he saw Doeg? Or did he pray when he hears his name among the guards at the door behind him as he's looking at the king? Okay? And he didn't know what to do. Do you know this story, by the way? He starts acting crazy. He starts slobbering down his beard. He's scribbling on the wall and talking to himself and turning around in circles and falling down. Okay, he doesn't know what to do. And he decides that what he's going to do to try to save his own neck is to act like he's out of his mind, completely off his rocker. And 
the king. Now this, if you're doing a skit, if you're a high school bunch doing a skit on this, you have to include this line because it's one of the best lines in the Bible. Here's Abimelech, and David is in front, in front of him acting nuts. And Abimelech turns to the guy beside him and goes, do I not have enough madmen working for me that you need to bring me another one? Okay? Show him the door. Now the guards, their idea was, let's kill him now. Let's kill him right now. This is the champion of our enemy. This is the number one guy. This is David killed his thousands. We were the ones that were the thousands. This is the thousands talking here. We should kill him now. And the king, simply because he's like, I'm sorry, my life is just too much. I can't handle it. Will someone just show him the door? And David's like, thank you, bye. And just skedaddles, just runs, okay, and saves his life. Now, (laughs) you want a boring read? Read commentaries on this. Every imaginable view. David was unfaithful to God because he went to the enemies of the God. Or David uh, acted crazy instead of just having faith in God. And I'm just like, close the book. Do you realize God's in charge of everything? God's in charge of everything. And who knows that, that God didn't just say, okay, David, go to the Philistines. And, and once he's there, act crazy. Now, the other thing that I like very much is there's many people that says, when they read this and it says, um, a psalm when he changed his behavior in front of Abimelech, that this psalm was actually what he spoke to Abimelech, that he wrote this on the spot, and this was his prayer. And I tell you, that gave me chills when I thought of that possibility because what's happening to a person like Abimelech, you talk about God being God, that's going to sound crazier than if you're dribbling on yourself, okay? That's that, because that idea of who is this nut? Get him out of my palace. I don't need any more crazies. So his personal testimony for something so dramatic was I sought the Lord, he answered me, and he delivered me from my fears. Do you see it? Now, sometimes you should tell me the short version, and sometimes you need to tell me the long one. Do you, do you agree Sometimes, and you'll know, the Spirit will help you know, no, honey, I've lived a long time, and I can tell you, God will get you through this. Sometimes that's all you need. And other times, let me tell you about this Thursday that I had once, 27 years ago. There are times that you need to do both, okay? So, let's, let's wrap this up. I'm going to finish it next week, okay? I'm going to finish it next week, because it's too good. I can't. Josh laughs at me when I go about 95 miles an hour at the end because I'm whoring through verses. Can't do that. But I do want to end with five. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. Do you remember Moses? We did this when we went through uh, 2 Corinthians 3. He had such a shiny face because he spent time with God, and it reflected off of his face. Part of his testimony was not, let me tell you what God told me, or let me tell you how I felt while God was talking to me. Those people knew so much that his face was reflecting God. All right? Peter comes and talks to the Sanhedrin, who are all PhDs, and they, he leaves and they said, this guy is a fisherman? Are you kidding me? 
How does he talk like that? He doesn't know anything. He never went to grade school. All he's done is fished all his life, and he can argue, and he, he can beat us at our own game. Are you crazy? What's going on? Do you see it? You, your, your testimony is not always just the things that happen. Your testimony is that you've been with Jesus, and people know. I promise you, I'm attracted to people who I know have shiny faces because they are the ones I will ask them to pray for me. I don't need to know every detail of your past history to say, okay, do they meet the criterion to be my prayer partner? No, I can can tell very, very, very quickly. Do I have somebody who's been with Christ? I know. Maybe not very much. I'm stupid, but like I know enough to know, look that way, don't look over there. Those are frauds. So you look towards people who are showing their testimony through their lives, then their mouth makes some sense. St. Francis, uh, Francis of Assisi or whatever was a 12th century monk, and he was noted once to say, preach the gospel, and if you absolutely have to, use words. That's what he, he said. If you absolutely have to, use words. Okay? I want to end with Romans chapter 8. This is uh, in one of Paul's kind of cumulative chapters about what the gospel has done in our lives. This is starting in verse 3. For God, what for God has done through the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, now, can't unpack all of that. The righteous requirement of the law is that you live like God lives. That's the righteous requirement of the law. I can't do that. Every time I've tried, I've fallen on my face. Christ did it and lived perfectly and then represents me before God. Okay? I'm totally forgiven. Now watch. If I walk by the Spirit by simply loving God in my life, then what happens is the righteous requirement of the law is lived out through me. Do you see the shine? The shine is God's shine. It's not your shine, and you get no credit for having a very shiny face. You simply are the guy who was with Jesus. That's it. And it is reflected. Your testimony is radiance that moves from your, from your life as a because your faces were towards him, you reflect his light, and that impacts other people. It impacts other people. It's, it's part of your personal testimony that's true of all people who have personal testimonies with Jesus. Is that, is that good? Let's pause right there, and we'll hold on until next week.